Galatians 2. Okay. If you have any more questions, see Jackie Hartley, and she will fill you in on all of that. Gold, a precious metal here on earth. Our history of the United States is um, peppered with all kinds of stories of people finding gold and people coming from everywhere in search of that gold. Uh, there's some stories and some pretty grisly murders because somebody trying to hide where they think the gold mine is. Uh, but finding pure gold is almost unheard of. Gold, you find it in some kind of ore mixed with some kind of elements or um, minerals. It's all mixed together. And so in order to get the gold out, when you find raw gold, the first thing that has to happen is it needs to be crushed. Then through a series of processes, they'll separate those different elements and minerals. And depending on what those elements and minerals are, that determines that initial process. Then the ore is finally sent to a refinery where it is melted in high heat, and treated with chloride. And by this time, the chloride separates all of the other metals and alloys and all of that. So it's 99.5% pure. Then there's a final step, is to cast the gold into electrodes or anodes and place them in an electrolytic cell. Then the refiners will pass an electrical current through those cells, and when they are finished, then the gold will be 99.99% pure. 24 karat gold. There's a long process from that chunk of rock that you find, more people panning in the river and hoping to find those little and get rich, a long process from that little piece of whatever to pure gold. And most of the time, your gold jewelry is not pure gold because it would be too soft. So they mix it with an alloy or something stronger so that when you pick up something with your gold ring on, it doesn't smash all over your finger and you have to be cut off. It's a process. I share that thought because as we look at what the Apostle Peter had to say to believers in his time who were experiencing persecution from the Roman Empire, they're experiencing persecution from the Jewish religion. Everybody was out to get them. He wrote to them in 1 Peter 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, for no, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Isn't that the first thing that comes to your mind when trials come your way? Hallelujah. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter said... You are in the process of God refining you, making your faith genuine as pure gold. And it's usually not a one-step process. In fact, it's never a one-step process. It's a lifelong process. Job in the middle of a very, very, very bad season of life. He's lost everything. Then he has three friends who become four friends who tell him it's all his fault. And if he had just repent, everything would be better. And they couldn't have been any more wrong had they tried. And he said to them these words, He, God, knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. 
Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary to India, wrote, Life can be difficult. Sometimes the enemy comes in like a flood. But then is the time to prove our faith and live out our songs. I love that. That is the time to prove our faith and live out our songs. In order for faith to be trusted, it must be tested. God allows circumstances, peoples, and things to come into our life in order to purify our faith, to remove the dross, to remove the elements and the minerals that pollute the gold and its value. We left Abram and Sarah last Sunday morning, moving from place to place in the land of Canaan, the land that God called Abram to go to, the land that God promised to Abram and his offspring for generations to come. We saw Abram moving his tent from place to place on track from north to south, building altars, altars of sacrifice and worship as he went. Altars of sacrifice that would say, God, I'm committing myself to follow you, to live for you, to listen to you. Altars that would proclaim to the people who are watching this man's life, I worship Yahweh the creator of the heavens and the earth, the only living God. Abram has showed a remarkable degree of faith in God, faith that caused him to move over 800 miles. Now, 800 miles to us, an hour and a half by plane. But it took him several years to get from point A to point B because they stopped in Iran for a while. And they're traveling by foot, they're traveling by donkey, whatever. And he said, he left his home country to go, he didn't even know where he was going. God just said, I'll show you, go and I'll show you. And go until I tell you you're here. This morning we're going to pick it up in verse 10 of chapter 12. He's in Canaan, walking through the land, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Point number one is faith is always tested. Faith is always tested. Abram is exactly where God called him to be. Remember, when he entered the land, the Lord appeared to him again and said, your offspring, I'll give this land to your offspring. That promise is a test in itself. Remember why it's a test? Abram and Sarai have no children. But to your offspring, I'm going to give you this land. The fact is, he lives as a sojourner. He lived in tents. He never built a house. The only property I can see that he bought is when he wanted to bury his wife. He bought a piece of property so he could legally bury her. The rest of the time he just travels back and forth because this land will be given to his offspring, to his children. He just, as a sojourner, now there's a famine in the land, a severe famine. If I'm in God's will, why do I have problems? Have you ever asked that question? You thought you were right in the middle of God's will, and suddenly the bottom falls out. Why is that? Well, it's back to point number one. Faith is always tested. Faith is always tested. James said it this way in James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He was just as crazy as Peter. <laughs> Count it all joy when you meet trials of various For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect 
that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Faith is always tested. So our main character in the Genesis narrative right now, Sir Abraham, finds himself in his whole entourage and experiencing circumstances that are overwhelming. It's famine. There's a lack of food. The supply chain has been shut down. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. I want you to remember what we've read about this man. God appeared to him in Ur of the Chaldeans and said, I want you to leave your, leave your homeland, I want you to leave your kin, I want you to leave your father's house and go to a land that I will show you. They went as far as Haran, and when his father died, God appeared to him again and said, I want you to go keep going. You've not gotten there yet. Go to a land that I will show you. God spoke to him. When he got to the middle of Canaan, God said, this is it. This is the land. Look around. This is what I'm going to give to your offspring. But we read in verse 10, now there was famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Point number two, Abram made a decision based upon the circumstances that he could see. He made a decision based on the circumstances that he could see. I don't find anywhere in the story where God said to Abram, I want you to go down to Egypt for a little while. Just go down there until the rain comes again. Because the River Nile, there's lots of water in the River Nile and, and they irrigate the land there. So there'll be crops growing in Egypt. God didn't say that. But somehow, Abram heard about there's still food in Egypt. He makes a decision to go there. Let's go on. Now I realize that there's two times in the Bible where God told somebody to go to Egypt. The first time is in, in later on in Genesis after there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now Jacob has 12 sons and they've sold one of the sons into slavery. And he's down in Egypt already. And a famine came into Canaan. It's kind of interesting. That's the land that God promised them that flows with milk and honey. But we read about two great famines where the people had to leave the land to find food. But God said to Jacob when... He discovers that his son is down there and there's food down there. God said to Jacob, it's okay, you go down to Egypt. And they're going to be there for 400 years. The next time somebody's told to go to Egypt to find food, or to find protection, not food, is when Jesus was born. And Herod finds out that the king of Israel has been born. And so he says, let's kill every baby boy in this vicinity, under the age of two. And God spoke to Joseph and said, take the child and his mother and go to Egypt. And they went until Herod died. And they came back into the land of Galilee, or in Judea. The rest of the time when somebody's going down to Egypt in the Scripture, it's indicative that somebody is going to the land of bondage. Somebody's going to the land of sin. Somebody's going to a place of idolatry. They're leaving the presence of God. So Abram made a decision based on what he can see. And from a human point of view, it, it was a very natural choice. No food here. We need to feed everybody. Let's go. No food. I don't see anything changing. When he looked at the circumstances, he thought he was looking at the whole picture. But what Abraham didn't see is the whole picture includes the God of all circumstances. What he did not see is that the whole circumstances includes the God of all circumstances. Let me put it another way in a few less words. Abraham forgot about God. 
Abraham forgot about God. He felt like he needed to use his own ingenuity to save himself and all the people who are now dependent on him. So he decided to move to Egypt until the famine passes. Looking at the circumstances and forgetting that God is around seems to be a human malady. Now we can throw stones at Abram until you start looking back at your own life when you made decisions based upon circumstances you could see. Circumstances I could see and I thought that this is the way to go. A few centuries later, when Moses tried to bring the children of Israel into this promised land, God said, I'll go before you. I'll wipe them out. Just go. And ten men who went and looked at things came back and convinced millions of people God lied to us. God brought us into a trap. God wants to kill us. We can't go in there. There's giants there. There's walled cities there. We can't go. And a whole generation just saw the promised land from a distance and died in the wilderness because they looked at the circumstances and forgot about the God of all circumstances. The God who opened the Red Sea for them. The God who was given a manna every day. The God who brought water out of the rock. Somehow they forgot that He said, I'm going with you. Don't be afraid. We can throw stones at those people. When I just said that, Jesus' words came to my mind. Let him without sin cast the first stone. When you're in a time of testing, remain where God has placed you until he tells you to move on. When you're in a time of testing, remain where God has placed you until he tells you to move on. The question is not, how do I get out of this trial? The question is, what is it that I need to learn in this trial? What is it that I need to get rid of in this trial? That's wrong thinking, wrong attitude, or something in that I just need to burn off my life like the dross to purify my faith. God is in control of the circumstances. I am safer in a famine in God's will than I am in a palace out of God's will. Catch that? I didn't write it down. But I'm safer in a famine when I'm in God's will than I am in a palace out of God's will. Someone has said this, the will of God will never leave you where the grace of God cannot keep you. The will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. So how do I know that Abram forgot about God when he went down to Egypt. I see it in the next couple of verses. Abram devised a scheme of his own. He devised a scheme of his own. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. That's what verse 11 says. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance. She must have been, I don't know what the proper words nowadays are. I mean, once it was fox, memory hot, I don't know. She was beautiful. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Verse 13, say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Here's what we know about Sarah in the Bible story. Beautiful woman. Captivating to look at. So captivating, at least in Abram's eyes, 
Husbands, your wife should be the most beautiful woman in the world in your eyes, right? I got one amen. (laughs) He thought going into a foreign culture, somebody would be so infatuated with her that when he wasn't looking, they would come up and slit his throat, bury him in the ground. If you read in Genesis chapter 20, there's a repeat of this story in a different city. But in that particular story, Abram confesses that when they left Ur of the Chaldees, he made an agreement with Sarai, his wife, when we go into a new place, just tell them that you're my sister. Do this kindness to me. I don't want to die for you. He would not have liked Brian Adams' song. One of the choruses to Brian Adams' song says, Oh, you can't tell me it's not worth trying for. I can't help it. There's nothing I want more. Yeah, I would fight for you. I lie for you. Walk the wire for you. Yay, I die for you. Abram, that wasn't his song. Everything I do, I do for you is the title of this song, I believe. He would lie for her, but die for her, that wasn't on his agenda. Now, before we run over the man again with the bus, there's something you should know about the custom of the day. And and you get a picture of it when you read ahead in the story in the book of Genesis, where I read ahead in the story a little later on, when Isaac is finally old enough to have a wife, Abraham calls his servant in and says, I don't want my son marrying one of these Canaanite women. I want you to go back to Mesopotamia. I want you to go back to Ur. I want you to find somebody out of our kin and find a wife for my son Isaac and bring him back. He says, let me take Isaac. And he said, no, 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 you're not going to take Isaac. You just go find the wife. And so the servant prays on the way, oh God, how am I going to find the wife? And then he asks for a sign. When I get to a well, the girl who will give me water and water all my camels. Now he had camels. I read that they can read, drink 40 to 50 gallons of water if they've not drank water in a long time. And I think there was 10 camels. This is one buff girl. (laughs) She watered them all. But in order for Rebecca to go to marry Isaac, they had to go through Laban, her brother, because dad was dead. A woman had to have a covering over them. It was called Phratiarchy, where... um, If there's no father, the brother assumes legal guardianship of his sister, particularly with respect to obligations, responsibilities, and arranging marriage on her behalf. Therefore, whoever wished to take Sarai as a wife would have to negotiate with her brother. So when Abram says, just tell him you're my sister, and that'll give us time to figure out a way to escape this place while they're trying to do the negotiations, and I'll throw a wrench in the negotiations. Now see, there's one other thing you need to know about Sarai and Abraham. They had the same dad. Different mothers, but the same father. So it wasn't a total lie when he said, he's my sister. He just didn't bother to tell anybody, but she became my wife. He must have thought he was pretty clever. He may have even felt like, I'm helping God to fulfill the promise to create a great nation by keeping myself alive. After all, if I'm dead, it can't happen. When you want to do something wrong, you'll always find a good reason for doing it. And if you can't find it, the devil will find it for you. 
Abram's scheme was not an act of faith. It was not an act of faith. It was a scheme that did not include God in any way. It was a scheme that was saying, if this is going to be get done, I'm going to have to do it. And I'm going to have to do it my way. There's a passage of Scripture that every believer should memorize and live by every day. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your path. Do not lean on your own understanding. I don't care what your IQ is. The Scripture says God's smarter than you. Don't lean on... God knows tomorrow. God sees people's hearts. God knows it all. Do not lean on your own understanding. Faith is living without scheming. Faith is living without scheming. I don't have to be a schemer. God has given me guidance, direction. And if it's not written in the Word, the Holy Spirit will speak it into my spirit as I'm in contact with Him through my prayer life and reading the Word. That's a good place for somebody to say amen. amen. Abram stumbled in his faith. Because of the circumstances of the famine, he chose to leave the land and go to Egypt. Coming into Egypt, something happened to his way of thinking. Abram allowed fear to replace faith. Abram allowed fear to replace faith. He became fearful of what men would do to him. They'll see her beauty. They'll want her. They'll kill me. They'll let her live. Proverbs 29, 25 says this. The fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare. Fear of man. The fear of God will conquer every other fear. The fear of God will conquer every other fear. Isaiah 8.13 says this, The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. If you have a Bible that has cross references in the notes or footnotes, just do a study on the fear of God. You want to live a blessed life? Fear God. Fear God. Fear Him. And it'll remove fear from every other place. Number four, Abram's scheme failed miserably. His scheme failed miserably. What he did not count on was Pharaoh. Now, if any other Egyptian would have been infatuated with Sarai to the point that they wanted her as a wife. They would have come to him and began negotiation. But here's the thing about it when you're a king. Well, here's how it says it. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Lady, you're coming to my house. Who are you? I'm the king. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Now her brother got quite a dowry. Sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. She's taken into Pharaoh's house. That means she's a bride-in-waiting. She's part of his harem. That means because of her beauty, she's about to become a source of entertainment for Pharaoh. She's in a place that she did not sign up to be. 
because of Abram's scheming. And yet it seems that he, he receives this great blessing, doesn't it? I mean, he gets sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, and female donkeys and camels. Female donkeys were a luxury item. They were more controllable and dependable for riding. So the rich folks, they got all the, the choice donkeys, the female donkeys, think Lexus and Mercedes. Camels, they had just recently been domesticated in that period of time, that era of time. They were in the early stages of being used for, for transportation. And later on, when Isaac's all grown up, Abraham, he has a bunch of them. But here he's given to them. And at this point in history, it's like Bill Gates and Elon Musk and their vehicles. Um, he's got camels. So faithless and deceitful Abram was inundated with luxury while his wife is spending sleepless nights wondering what in the world is going to happen now. How do I get out of this? Abram moved from being a blessing to bringing judgment. He moved from being a blessing. God has told him, I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. But when he moved out of the will of God and got himself in a place where God did not send him and caused people to believe a lie, God intervened in the scene. Verse 17, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife, take her and go. Probably a little louder. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. A pretty sobering development. They are stricken with judgment because of Abram's unbelief. Because of his lack of faith of God. Because of his scheming. Have you read the story of Jonah? When he's going where he wasn't supposed to go? Now everybody in the boat thinks they're going to die because the storm that God has blown across the sea. Makes one wonder how often we brought pain into somebody else's life when we have walked out of the will of God. When we have left the place of the altar, when we have left the ongoing place of worship, you don't see him building any altars in Egypt. I just want that to sink in. Abram was harshly rebuked by the pagan king. Apostle Peter learned it the hard way. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Scripture tells us that God opposes the proud. Abram went down there with pride. And now he is being rebuked by this pagan king. There's a whole lot of details about the story we don't know. How in the world did Pharaoh know that Abram lied? Some believe it was probably because Sarah was the only one of the harem that was not affected by the plague. And I think the plague was probably a skin condition that was on them, that came on all of them. Because in the Old Testament, many times in the plague, that has to do with some kind of skin condition. Maybe somebody, noticing that she's still beautiful, says, who in the world are you? Where did you come from? 
And they want to blame it on her for spilling the beans. I don't know if she did or not. Later on in Genesis 20, when he does it with Amalek, God spoke to Amalek through a dream. Maybe Pharaoh had a dream. Maybe an angel came. But whatever, Pharaoh brings him in. He brings him in. And he begins to speak to him. He wants to know, what is this you've done to me? Why did you tell me she's your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? Why did you let, why did you let me take her to be my wife? And notice, we don't hear Abram say a word. Here is your wife. Take her and go. One writer suggested he's probably suffering so much from the plague that's landed on him. And he's just as much as saying, now get out of my country and I never want to see your face again. Abram was expelled from Egypt in shame. He was expelled from the land in shame. He went there to escape the throes of famine. He went there on his own accord. He went there with his own plan for survival. But he has no answer to Pharaoh to explain his plan of deceit. Again, he built no altars in Egypt. He will not make the name of Yahweh famous in a good way in Egypt. Instead of bringing blessing, he brought pain and suffering, all in his selfish effort to save his own skin. But, but for the grace of God, it could have been a whole lot worse. But for the grace of God, he momentarily forgot about God. For a very long minute, he thought he had to be the one to make things happen. But God stopped him in his tracks and turned him around. As we read the story of kings and kingdoms in that day, and we read about Abram's fear of going into Egypt, it is not a stretch of imagination to believe that Pharaoh could have had him executed on the spot. But the grace of God intervened. It's been a while since we've sang the worship chorus. One thing remains. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. Your love never fails. Never gives up. Never runs out on me. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for that truth. Amen. I love the chorus to Chris Tomlin's version of Jesus Loves Me. I couldn't run, couldn't run from his presence. I couldn't run, couldn't run from his arms. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Or the bridge to the goodness of God. Your goodness is running after, running after, running after me. That comes right out of Psalms 23. Your goodness is running. It's running after. It's running after me. So with my life laid down, I surrender all. I give you everything. Your goodness is running after me. I take great comfort in Paul's words to the church at Philippi. The first chapter, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Abram stumbled. I've stumbled once or twice along the way. But God never gave up. And He's going to finish the work that He began. He's going to finish the work. 
The Imperials used to sing a song way back when. He didn't bring us this far to leave us. He didn't pick us up to let us down. He didn't teach us to swim to let us drown. I don't remember all the rest of the words, but I remember those words. He who began a good work, He's able to bring it to completion. God called Abram for a purpose. God said, you're stumbling, but that's not over. Chapter 13 begins with the words, So Abram went up from Egypt. His wife and all he had and Lot went with him and they went to the Negev. I'm here today because of the grace of God. I'm so thankful that God is faithful when we're faithless. I am thankful for what I read in 1 John, the second chapter. John's epistle that he wrote to the churches in Asia Minor. In verse 2, or verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Verse 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And if you back up just a few verses, four verses in chapter 1, verse 9, he says this, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Though Abram stumbled, he was not defined by it. Though he stumbled, though he had a moment where he did not have faith in God, he put faith in himself. When we get to the end of the story, when we get to the book of Hebrews chapter 11, he gets more print than anybody else when God is describing for us what faith looks like. He is called a friend of God because of his faith in God. We talked about the fact that Paul calls him the, the father of faith. And somebody could look at this story in chapter 12 of Genesis, in the first few verses of chapter 13, and think that Abram got really blessed financially there in Egypt. Somebody could say, God caused all things to work out for his good. He got rich, and he got servants to root. You know what? Those riches did not bring a blessing to his family. It was that wealth that created problems between Abraham's people and Lot's people and caused the division that eventually sends Lot towards Sodom and Gomorrah where he loses his wife when the judgment of God comes down on that city as they're trying to escape. And what about the servants? We're going to read about an Egyptian servant girl named Hagar a little later in this story. And it was really... There's still war going on between Hagar's children and Isaac's children. It wasn't a great blessing. Never forget Jesus' question. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Abram stumbled because he looked at the circumstances. He forgot God. He stumbled because he endeavored to scheme his way around the famine that God had probably intended to use to mature his faith. Remember, Elijah was in a famine. Did he go hungry? Oh, the answer is no. For a couple of years, God fed him. The ravens brought him meat and bread every day, and he had his own private brook. When it dried up, God sent him to a widow's house in Zarephath. He says to the widow, make me a cake. She says, well, I got enough to make one last meal, and we're all going to die of starvation. Make me a cake. And the oil and the flour never ran out until it rained. God probably intended for the famine 
to mature his faith. Well, it did in a way because it burned away some of the dross when he went down there and did the wrong thing. God did not give upon him. In case you have not picked up on this subtle message today, expect trials as part of God's plan. Expect trials as part of God's plan. A young pastor talking, or a young believer talking to his pastor one day said, I thought getting saved was the end of my troubles, but now I know that faith in Christ has given me a whole new set of problems. Anybody say amen to that? There's a truth regarding Jesus that we often do not think about. I want you to look at what the writer of Hebrews has to say about an aspect of Jesus' life on earth before and after the crucifixion. Hebrews 5, 7 said this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence or fear of God. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus was made perfect through trials and suffering. Now, I know he's born sinless, and he lived a sinless life. He lived sinless life because in the face of every trial and every temptation, he obeyed what the Father told him to do. Hebrews 4.15 says this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In the same way that Jesus were perfected by trials and temptation, you and I are perfected. We are matured as we choose obedience in the face of trials. We choose obedience in the face of temptation. But we have it better than Abram had it. It's a little bit easier for us. Back to verse 7 in chapter 12. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. Now I think this verse, word offspring, has a double meaning. And the reason I believe it has a double meaning is because Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Now we know that God gave the land to the Israelites. 400 years later, or more than that. <clears throat> but Paul, as he looked at the Scripture, he said there's another meaning to that offspring. Jesus is the one through whom the whole world will be blessed. Jesus is the one through whom the whole world will be blessed. The offspring. He's the seed. We thought about that when we partook of the communion this morning. It's His body, His blood, that is absolutely the most important thing for our salvation. Notice this, Jesus did not stumble when tested and tried. Satan tempted Him. We know about the wilderness temptation, but over and over and over, using the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, they would come and tempt Jesus. And He never stumbled. He never wavered. He did not look to his devices, his own schemes. He relied on what God said. Abraham was a great man of faith. Jesus was the perfect man of faith. Abraham left Ur and his family to go to the land that God would show him. Jesus left heaven in obedience to the plan that he and the Father had made for our salvation. Abram is known for his great faith and his great fall. Christ's life is one of the most of exceptional faith that never falls.
falters. And here's the, here's the kicker. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Apostle Paul preaching in Athens said, In him we live and move and have our being. In him. Jesus not only saves us, but he empowers us to live a life of faith. He not only saves us, but He empowers us to live a life of faith. The Father was pointing to Jesus when He blessed Abraham to be a blessing. Jesus fulfills every promise of the Scripture. He gives us the strength to live by faith. Jesus is the beginning and the ending of faith. When trials come, do not turn to your own resources, but to Christ. When trials come, do not turn to your own resources, but to Christ. We all have a tendency to want to fix everything. Sometimes you get away with it on small scale. But the Lord's going to allow trials to come your way that only He can solve as you put your faith in Him. The last note, He will sustain your faith. He will sustain your faith. The circumstances might look any different, but your faith will be rock solid. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking stand. This morning I want to close with singing a prayer that I love to sing. We haven't sang it for a while.